So Jesus, uh, in our personal lives, in our corporate life as a nation, help us to find your truth, your justice, your peace in your word. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, hello, all of you here at 945, those of you watching at home, as well as at the 11 o'clock service, our middle schoolers, high schoolers back from Extreme Week. Uh, it, is, it is great to see all of you and have you all here. Uh, a while back, a friend of mine uh, showed me an article from The Village Voice, which is a liberal newspaper, and I'm not making a political comment here, so just calm down. Uh, my friend just showed me this uh, article. It's actually an advice column in The Village Voice called Ask Andrew, and there's Andrew. And this is what it said. Hi, Andrew. I just can't deal with my father. He's a right-wing conservative who has turned into a total jerk intent on ruining our relationship and our planet with his politics. People like my dad are going to destroy us all. I don't have any good times with him anymore. All we do is argue. I love him no matter what, but how do I explain to him that his politics are turning him into a monster, destroying everything, and pushing away the people who care about him? Thanks for your help, son of a right-winger. And here's how Andrew from the liberal village voice responded. Dear son of a right winger, go back and read your letter. Read it again, then read it again. Try to find a single instance where you referred to your dad as a human being. There isn't one. You've reduced your father, the person who created you, to a set of political views. You've also reduced yourself to a set of opposing views and reduced your relationship to a fight between the two. The world isn't being destroyed by Democrats or Republicans, liberal or conservative. The world is being destroyed by one side believing the other side is destroying the world. The world is being damaged by one group of people believing they're truly better than others who think differently. When we believe that some people are monsters, we ourselves become monsters. When we anticipate with ferocious glee the next chance we have to prove someone wrong and ourselves right, all the while disregarding the vast complexity of every issue, we are reducing the beauty of life to a side or to a type. No matter how wrong someone else may seem to us, they are still human. We must strive to see things from the point of view we most disagree with, and we must at all times force ourselves to pe love the people we dislike the most. Not because it is nice, but because our own sanity and survival depends on it. Well done, Andrew, from the Village Voice. All right. But I, I, I got to be honest, in this moment, uh, that's a, that, that I find what he wrote there a little challenging especially in light of yesterday's news about the, the sickening news about the white supremacist rally. I mean, let's be clear. White supremacism is evil. It, is, it has nothing to do with the way of Jesus, and it was just sickening to me to see the Nazi salute on an American college campus. Like, we had a war about that, right? And we won. So just to be clear, that is not of God at all, and I'm angry and disgusted by it. So I find Andrew's message a little harder to swallow today than I did on Wednesday when I wrote the draft of this sermon. But I also know that there's truth in that. And I can recognize that Andrew's on to something. He makes a point that's very similar to the one Jesus makes in the parable we just read, which incidentally was chosen months ago for this particular Sunday. Uh, and in this story, a servant owes the king 10,000 talents, huge amount of money, billions of dollars, and he can't pay it, so the king cancels his debt. 
Right? But then that same servant comes across a man who owes him just a few bucks, just a few dollars, which is only, you know, but instead of canceling that debt the way his debt was canceled, he throws the guy into jail, chokes him, and then throws the guy into jail. The forgiven isn't forgiven. And the point is obviously because Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross, we have been forgiven a huge amount of sin. Shouldn't we, Christians of all people, be the most forgiving, most loving. And while this parable that we just read, it kind of focuses on interpersonal relationships, and that's where I'll focus, and I know, you know national stuff, that's co- more complex. Still, I think this parable points to how the people of God can begin to bring at least a little healing to a culture that is tearing itself apart. If we can do this in the microcosm of our own lives and relationships, maybe we can bring it to the macrocosm of our nation. And at least learn to be, uh, to be in relationship with people who are very different than we are. It would be a start to healing our culture. But it is very hard to do. Forgiveness. Even for people like me, was very, I'm very well aware that I have been forgiven a vast amount. I remember when I was uh, uh, doing my PhD, one time I tried to check out a book at the university library and I couldn't because I owed late fees for some overdue books. Now, graduate student, I checked out tons of books, so easy to forget to return one or two. So I asked, how much do I owe? And the librarian said, $6,000. <laughs> I had this urge to tell her about Jesus because I really wanted her to get the concept of grace in that moment. Well, fortunately, she said, bring him back and we'll cancel the debt, and which I did. But then, this is a true story. A couple of weeks later, I was looking for a particular book that I needed and found that it was checked out and overdue. And I remember thinking, that is so rude. I need that book. This library should enforce their rules better. That's his parable. Forgiveness is hard. And we all fail at it, including this preacher. And the point here is not to feel guilty. The point of the parable actually isn't so much about us. It's about what Jesus' love can do in and through us. And it shows us three things. The first thing this parable shows us is the importance of forgiveness. That when the king discovers that the servant he forgave didn't forgive the other servant, he says to him, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive from your heart. And you came to church to be encouraged. <laughs> like, yikes. What's that about? Now, in it needs to be said, this is, this is not a historical event. This is a story Jesus told to make a point. And I don't think Jesus is saying here that if we don't forgive, we're going to go to hell because that would contradict the entire New Testament. All of our sins, even unforgiveness, has been paid in full by Jesus on the cross. So here's what I think he's saying. What I think he's getting at is when you hang on to anger and bitterness, you become your own jailer. You are in a prison of your own making. You are being tortured by that anger, that rage. You're being eaten alive by it. And what does all your anger and rage do to the person you're mad at? Nothing. It doesn't do anything to the person you're mad at, but it sure does hurt you quite a bit. When we refuse to forgive, we are in a prison of anger and bitterness, and we are becoming more like Satan and less like Jesus, and we saw the ugly extreme of that yesterday, where bitterness ultimately takes you in the white supremacy movement. 
And, and I know this is very hard to do. Some of you have, some of us have had deeply painful things. Parents, spouses, children, coworkers, friends who have hurt us very deeply. They've, they've they, you know, emotionally eviscerated us. And it's hard to do. And it seems easier to just walk away. But that damages us more than the other person, and it is toxic in our culture. You know, it's interesting when the king says, throw the unforgiving servant in jail, basically what he's saying is, is, is give the guy what he wants. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is we get what we want. And the king is saying, okay, if what you want, unmerciful servant, is a world that is only about law and being right and no mercy, have it your way. This is what that looks like. A prison of your own making. So, how do we forgive? Because it is hard to do. How do we forgive? And we've preached you know, tons of sermons on forgiveness over the years. I'm not going to repeat all of those. Just a couple of things from this particular parable about how to forgive. And the first is you've got to identify with the person who hurt you. When the first servant couldn't pay his debt, it says the king took pity on him and canceled the debt. And the Greek word for took pity literally means your heart to go out to someone, to have empathy, to identify with somebody. The best way to forgive someone is to identify with them and see how much you have in common. The ways that you too have screwed up and hurt other people. Because all of us have our stuff. We all sin. We all hurt other people, right? I do, you do, you know, preachers do, maybe even especially preachers. Someone sent me a, a, a story about a man and a woman who'd been friends for years and had died and gone to heaven and told St. Peter they wanted to get married. And Peter said, well, you know, you've got all eternity, so take 50 years to really think about it to be sure. So 50 years later, the couple returned, and they still wanted to be married. And Peter said, whoa, what's the rush? Like, hang on here, right? Take another 50 years to really think about it. But they said, no, we want to be married now. So Peter said, okay, look, take another 50 years, and if we don't have a preacher up here by then, I'll marry you myself. <laughs> Someone sent, I don't know what the message was. It does show, though, that, that we all got our stuff, even preachers, everyone, we, got, we sit and we all have stuff we need to be forgiven for. In this parable, the second servant says to the unforgiving servant, be patient with me and I will pay it back. The exact same words the unforgiving servant had said to the king who canceled his debt. You would think, you would think that he would have heard himself in the second servant's pleas. You would, have, you would think he would see himself in that second servant asking for mercy, but he didn't identify with him. See, the way you stay mad at someone, the way you, you kind of nurse a grudge is by dehumanizing them and caricaturizing them rather than identify with them. Similar to the Ask Andrew column I started with. The guy, that guy had reduced his dad just kind of down to a set of beliefs. Or for that matter, when I showed Andrew's picture and told you he was from the Village Voice, did you have some preconceived notions of what he might say in his column? I know I did. We reduce people to categories. Again, the ugly extreme of that yesterday. And we do it personally, too. For instance, if you're angry because someone lied to you, right, and somebody asks you, well, why are you mad at that person? You say, well, he's a liar. That's all he is. He's just a liar. You're a liar, liar, pants on fire. That's who he is. Now he's not a person. He's a liar. But then if someone says, well, don't you ever lie? And you say, yeah. And if they say, well, why? You say, well, it's complicated. I mean, I, I shouldn't have, but, you know, there was this and then there was that, right? You don't say I'm just a liar. No, no, no. You, you're a complex, multifaceted human being, right? You're not reduced to a category. Other people have sins. We have ethical growth opportunities, <laughs> right? Here's the deal. 
You can stay mad at someone only as long as you feel superior to them. And I'm speaking to me on this. Identify with the person you're mad at. Second, realize how much you've been forgiven. The first servant was forgiven a debt of billions of dollars. Now, that cost has to go somewhere, right? I mean, either the king pays it or the servant pays it. So in this parable, the, the king absorbs the cost, just like Jesus absorbs our payment, punishment for sin on the cross. You and I owed like 10,000 talents, but Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And when we really get that, not as a theology, but in our hearts, when we, it was not in our heads, but in our hearts, the more we get that, the more we can forgive others. It becomes easier. So reflect on your sins. Be, not to feel guilty, but just to realize how much you've been forgiven. And remember this, in the Bible, always, always, you grant forgiveness before you feel it. See, we Americans think it's the other way around. i got to feel it before I grant it. Uh, 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 uh. You grant it, and then you feel it. Now, by now, some of you are probably asking, well, what about accountability? Shouldn't that person be held accountable for the ways that they hurt me? Yes, absolutely. And do you know who the least qualified person to do that is? You. Why? you got a dog in that hunt. Let other people, let God hold that person accountable. And God will. We reap what we sow. And yes, if someone hurts you over and over and over, you got to protect yourself with some, with some boundaries, <clears throat> but you can still forgive and let go of bitterness. And this is not weakness. I know if in our culture it feels like forgiving is weakness. Revenge feels strong. But it is not. It is actually the strongest thing there is. One of the amazing things that was so powerful about Martin Luther King was he took a clearly strong stand against racism, but also offered Jesus' love and forgiveness to white racists because he believed to his core that they were in a prison of their hatred and their racism and they needed to be let out. Hate just makes more hate. Jesus' love makes all things new. A few months ago, I told you about a guy named Will Campbell whose best friend was killed by a white Right, racist, white supremacist. And I told this a couple of months ago, I, 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 it needs to be told again, I think, today. And the killer went to jail, as the killer should have, and Campbell was understandably furious at the injustice, as he should have been. I, I don't think Jesus asked that we never feel angry. He asked that we just channel that anger in, and act in his love, which is stronger than anger and bitterness. So Campbell became what he calls an apostle of the rednecks. And he goes around preaching and showing Jesus' love to, to, to white racists, which includes confronting them on their racism so that they can be set free from that prison of hatred. And when they experience Jesus' love, many of them leave their life of hate and help other Klansmen to do the same, which means there are fewer Klansmen in the world today because of Will Campbell. Now, I found that story hard to tell today, right, because I'm, I'm a little angry. But, but I got I to gotta look at it and go, but that is the way of Jesus, and it works. It is more powerful. I've seen similar things happen in Rwanda where perpetrators and victims of the genocide can reconcile and forgive each other, be in the same church, call each other brother and sister in Christ. Surely if they can do it, we can do it. And we can do it in our individual lives, and we can do it corporately in our national life. And for ideas of how you can do that nationally or be part of healing our culture, you can contact our justice and reconciliation team. Or simply open yourself to a relationship with someone who is different than you. Forgiveness is the fuel of the kingdom. It's very important and it's very powerful. Which brings me to the second thing this parable shows us, and that is relationship is more important than, and you can fill in the blank, almost anything. 
Harvard just released a 75-year study. 75 years. That is a long study, right? 75-year study, true groups of people, poor people, and Harvard graduates. And they determined the most important factor in human happiness is having good relationships. Okay, I could have saved them that 75-year study. I mean, like, well, they didn't ask me. Well, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't alive when it started. But anyway, like, I could have saved them all that trouble, right? The Bible's known this for thousands of years. Relationship is more important. And this takes us back to the Dear Andrew thing. His point was, look, there's something more important here than arguing politics, your relationship with your dad. And you see that in this parable. Actually, the entire chapter that it's in is about relationship. But in this parable, the master forgives the first servant an enormous sum of money. Why? Because relationship is more important than money. Now, we all would agree to that. But do we live it? Do we live it when we're workaholics trying to get ahead, to, you know, neglecting family and friends? Or when the next-door neighbor does something that costs us money or lowers our property value and we go ballistic? Relationship is more important than being right. The unforgiving servant had the right to insist he pay, be paid back. It is right to pay people back. But the point of this story is relationship is more important than being right. And I see this all the time in the marriage counseling I do. Couples will come to me and each, each person in the couple try to, try to get me on, to take their side and try to agree with them that they are right and their spouse is wrong. And I will often say to them, look, you have a choice. You can be right or you can be married. You pick. Not the truth doesn't matter, but there's something more important, relationship. Besides, the person you're mad at is way more likely to see your side of things if they feel like you love them. Relationship is more important than politics. And what I see on social media from Christians on both sides, both sides is breaking my heart because it is contributing to the bitterness and anger and toxicity in our culture, and Christians should be doing better and leading the way. And when you post that comment that disparages people of goodwill on the other side, when you constantly argue with your uncle every holiday, that fractures relationship. There is such a thing as respectful, honoring dialogue and disagreement. And of all people, shouldn't Christians be showing our culture how to do this? We've got to do better. And here's a hint, okay? Any article that contains the phrase epic smackdown does not qualify as respectful dialogue. <laughs> Don't post it, okay? Nor is it helpful to assume other people's motives, right? Oh, they only care about the rich. Oh, they hate America. Well, maybe some, but not all. Christians not only can do better, we are called by our Lord to do better and show our nation a better way. And again, it's just more effective. People are way more open to alternative points of view when they feel valued. Turns out calling people names and arguing with them doesn't convince them. Relationship with God and others is more important and more powerful than anything else. Which brings me to the last thing this parable tells us, and that is that only the deep, deep love of Jesus really changes us and makes us authentically good, not just kind of phony good. You know, every so often in baseball, you get one of those bench-clearing fights, right? And, 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 and if you're a Christian, that can put you in kind of a dilemma, you know, what do I do? Well, years ago, a Christian who played for the Mariners would scan the opposing team whenever a fight broke out, find someone he knew was a Christian, he'd race toward that person, grab him by the jersey and say, I won't hurt you if you won't hurt me, and then they kind of pretend to fight, right? <laughs> so that they could kind of be with their teammates but not do any damage, right? Uh, see, that's what I love about the Mariners, they so rarely beat the opposing team. I thought we had a wild card, but you know, I'm, uh, I don't know. After this series, I don't know. Anyway, that is not what Jesus has in mind. That is, that is pretend reconciliation. That's fake goodness. 
The only thing that makes us genuinely good and loving is to experience God's grace and love ourselves. Why, for instance, do we lie? We lie because we don't feel loved. We're afraid we're not accepted, so we lie to make ourselves look better. Why is there racism? Because some people need to feel superior to others to feel okay about themselves. But to a heart that feels absolutely loved, a lie is unnecessary and unnatural. To a heart that feels absolutely loved, forgiveness seems like the natural thing to do. Only from a heart that feels absolutely loved is it natural to love others. And ultimately, the point of this parable isn't just go out and forgive someone. I'm not sure the parable is about us that much at all. It's about the king. It's about the generosity of the king. It's about the mercy of the king. It says the king had empathy, identified with the servant. The Greek word that is used there for empathy is the word that is used to describe Jesus more than any other word in the New Testament. He, Jesus had empathy. He identified with us, took on our sin, identified with our sin, and paid the price for it. Why? Did he do that? Because relationship with you is more important to him than anything else. And when we really get that, it changes us. Not in our heads, in our hearts. So here's your homework, okay? Here's your homework. I'm not going to tell you to go out and forgive someone. Instead, ask God to make his, his love, his forgiveness real for you. Ask him to help you experience it because that's going to change you. You'll forgive a bunch of people when you do that. And then be looking for how God's going to answer that prayer. Maybe it'll be in a thought that isn't your thought. Maybe it will be in, in worship, in the music. Maybe it'll be something someone says, a memory, something from Scripture, but he'll answer. A woman named Myra Johnson tells a story of being at a Bible study focused on the Ten Commandments. And she was feeling pretty smug about not stealing and, you know, not murdering and all that sort of thing. But when it got to the commandment, honor your mother and father... She said, against my will, I thought of my mother who had died 10 years earlier. Honor her. When I felt relief more than sorrow at her death, the tears I cried at her funeral were those of an adult daughter who had never heard the words I most needed from her. I'm proud of you. Myra's dad had died when she was really young. Her mom suffered from depression but refused to get help for it. Myra got straight A's, won all kinds of championships. Her mom never said a word, didn't even go to her graduation, said she didn't feel up to it. When Myra got married, her mom always criticized the way she ran the house, the way she raised her kids. But, but, that night, but that night in her Bible study, Myra said, I came face to face with my own hardened heart. But how was I going to honor a parent who had caused me so much pain? She said, I began by admitting I needed God, so I prayed a lot. And I took into account my mom's own dysfunctional parents and how that had affected her. Every generation carries its own baggage into parenthood. Hadn't I done the same with my children? When I succumbed to bouts of anger and resentment, my family always suffered, so I was not sinless. So as I released each of these things to Jesus, I experienced his love, I experienced his forgiveness of my sins, and I felt a burden lift off of me. The next step was to let my mom back into my life emotionally, if not physically. So I climbed the attic stairs to retrieve her portrait and stared at it for a long time. And I said, I'm sorry I haven't honored you. I forgive you, and I pray you've also forgiven me for hardening my heart against you. I want your memory to be part of my life. She said, an incredible peace filled me as God empowered me to do what I could not do on my own, remember my mother in love. And then this amazing thing happened. The bitter, condemning frown I'd always seen in my mom's picture now appeared as a smile. In her eyes, I saw the approval I had always longed for. 
Now, obviously, the picture hadn't changed, nor were the past hurts wiped out. What changed was my perception of the past, which transformed my present and my future. I am breaking the chains of bitterness in my life. I am set free. Myra experienced God's love for her, identified with her mom, acknowledged that she herself was not sinless, in fact, had sinned in some similar ways to her mom, valued relationship more than holding a grudge, and she was set free. Now, her mom was dead, and sometimes that can be harder with someone who's alive, who keeps hurting you, and maybe you do need to put some boundaries to protect yourself, but you can still forgive and let go of the bitterness. And all of that becomes possible when we connect with the deep, deep love Jesus has for us. And there is no limit to his love. There is no limit to his grace. You cannot out Jesus. It cannot be done. In this story, the, the first servant asks the king, just all he asks for is more time to repay his debt. But a debt that size could never be repaid. So the king, who represents God, gives the servant more than he asks for. Not just more time, he gives him an eternally canceled debt. Showing that there is no limit to God's grace, no limit to God's love. Because see, when Jesus would have been perfectly within his rights to lecture us or punish us or demand payment from us rather than show mercy, instead, when he did not have to, when it was inconvenient and unfair to do so, when justice and prudence dictated otherwise, God brought an unclean you and an unclean me to an unclean cross where we were made clean in him for eternity. Why? Because there was something more important to him than anything else, relationship with you. He would rather die than lose you, so he did. And it is that powerful love that changes you, me, and it can. It can. It has done it in the past. In the Roman Empire, it is doing it now. In Rwanda and other places, it can change an entire nation. And Christians are called by our Lord to lead the way in healing. So Jesus, thank you that you forgive us over and over and over. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to experience that, not as a theology, but as a reality in our lives, and help us to be people of reconciliation and healing in our personal lives and in our life as a nation. Lord, help us with your power to lead the way in bringing healing, and we will give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.